Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A warning before you go on. This episode contains descriptions of death and injury that some listeners might find upsetting. In 1996, in the UK, we had Dunblane. In the US, they've had several Dunblanes. And today marks 10 years since Sandy Hook, the deadliest shooting in a primary-level school in US history. At least 27 dead, 20 children, 7 adults, including the principal. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, Beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. In the decades since, mass shootings have continued to hit the top of the news bulletins and some of the most terrible have all had something in common. Variations of the AR-15 were used at a Buffalo supermarket, at a Texas Walmart in 2019, a Florida high school in 2018, a Texas church and a Las Vegas concert in 2017, and Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. Killers have continued to get hold of these AR-15-style assault weapons before turning them on their fellow citizens and fellow pupils. Luke will always be young. Just he never has to worry about taking SATs because he never has to worry about anything else the rest of him. So he had the perfect life 15 years he was here. So why is a weapon designed for the battlefield so readily available to civilians? Why does America allow it to happen? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the soldier's gun in the civilian's hand. How the AR-15 became the mass murderer's weapon of choice. I went to Miami to look up an old acquaintance of mine who I'd met many years before in Nicaragua, of all places. I lived there for three years in the mid-1980s as a Reuters correspondent. And Manny Alvarez, who's a Cuban-American, was working there for CBS as a cameraman. He's since retired, and he has a large collection of guns. Matthew Campbell is Foreign Features Editor for The Sunday Times. He invited me to go to the shooting range, uh, and so he, first of all, showed me his vast collection of weapons in his safe in a garage. (laughs) When you say vast collection, how many weapons did he have, roughly? 
Well, he, he took out a few rifles, including a Kalashnikov and an AR-15, and then various pistols. He had a, a Glock and another handgun, at least. So there's half a dozen. And I think he had others that he didn't bring out. That looks like prime alligator territory. I am. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> So we went off to the range, not far from his house. I have my 357, which you're going to shoot. It's a revolver. You have it close right to hand. On the bed, on the wood. I have a wooden yeah. uh, headboard. But you never carry a gun in the car, for instance. I have a gun that I, every now and then, I put in the car. And I have it right here. I have a thing to put the gun right there. It looked a bit like a warehouse. But as soon as I got out of the car, I could hear this strange thudding sound coming from within. We went into the reception area, carrying these rather heavy bags full of guns. It was a bit like walking into some sort of shop, because on the walls, there were all these display cases, but they were filled with guns, of course. And then there was a counter, behind which there were two very burly-looking men with guns holstered at their waists. Then one of the attendants took us to... Uh, our lane. So we went down a long corridor and there was this, the, the thudding noise got louder and louder. <laughs> and then we came to our doorway and we went in to find three or four others. They looked quite young. They might've been teenagers, a couple of boys and, and a young woman, and they were firing a pistol and the targets were basically human shaped and so Manny took out the AR-15. And uh, after showing me how to load the magazine and giving me a few instructions about how to fire it, I then um, pointed it at the target, which I think was about sort of 40 feet away, I would say, and fired away. Did you have to put much pressure on the trigger to get it to fire? No. I mean, it fires very easily. And there's not that much of a recoil, to be honest. You do feel it. But... No, it's a very easy thing to operate. Even removing the magazine and loading the magazine again can be done quite easily, I found. So this is a gun with, which, which seems to be very, very powerful, but actually very easy to operate. So I think it's yes. time for you to tell us about where this gun comes from, what its origins were, and what its original purpose was. Well, it was developed by a small company called Armalite in the 50s. The American military was looking for a light weapon easy to operate on the battlefield and a very powerful weapon as well at the same time. This is the Armalite AR-10, the modern combat rifle, a lightweight, rugged and versatile weapon that combines the accuracy of a sniping rifle with the firepower of a machine gun. They tried this weapon out in the early stages of the Vietnam War. And there's a report from the time, a military report, an assessment of the capabilities of the AR-15. It expressed satisfaction with this gun and its so-called lethality because uh, an American soldier had fired it at a Viet Cong soldier at a distance of 49 feet and taken the head off. And so that, that tells you just how powerful it is. It was adopted thereafter by the American military or versions of it. And so it's been in service ever since in the American military, effectively. 
Is it an automatic or a semi-automatic? In other words, if you keep your finger on the trigger, does it fire multiple rounds or do you have to press the trigger each time for another round? The version they sell to civilians these days is semi-automatic in that you, you have to keep pulling your trigger to fire it. The military version can be fully automatic. Let's talk about how this weapon eventually moved from military use only, that's what it's developed for, into the civilian population. When did that start happening? Uh, you know, as soon as these things were being made, they were making civilian versions of them. And that carried on up until 1994, when Bill Clinton, the president then, spearheaded a, a ban on so-called semi-automatic weapons. Assault weapons, they were also known as. And uh, in 1994, this was approved by Congress, and it had a 10-year sunset clause. In other words, uh, it would have to be legislated on again a decade later. And a decade later, President George W. Bush had no appetite for this legislation whatsoever, and it was allowed to lapse. Essentially, you couldn't sell these things for 10 years between 1994 and 2004. That's right. What happened in 2005, just the year after the moratorium finished? The gun industry could not believe their luck. Basically, Congress approved legislation that exempted them from any liability whatsoever for the improper use of their weapons. In other words, for the illegal use of these guns. <laughs> And so they weren't liable in any way for mass killings or slaughter, murders, anything like that. They would not be held to account. And after that, they took the view that, oh, well, we can basically start manufacturing even heavier caliber weapons and weapons like the AR-15 regarded by many as weapons of war. So now the gun industry started to, to market them, I would say, in a different way as well. They called them modern sporting rifles, for one thing. They were also gradually being sold more and more across the country. So manufacturers feel emboldened in a sense to kind of market their weapons what kind of marketing did they use to make something like the ar-15 an attractive buy the lifting of the ban coincided in 2004 with what some people have described as a wave of post 9-11 patriotism and basically america was at war as well if you uh, recall there were wars going on in iraq and afghanistan referred to as the sandbox wars by many in the American military. And these were the weapons that were being used by American soldiers. And so people at home were watching these images on TV of the lads cradling these guns on distant battlefields. And it became seen as a, an American rifle, and it became also seen as a patriotic thing to do almost, to, to acquire one of these guns. Talking to people in the industry too, including a dissident gun industry executive who, who left his job in dismay at the rise of the AR-15 and the way it was being marketed, 
you know, he told me that the AR-15 had become known by the National Rifle Association as America's rifle. That was their sale pitch, effectively, that it was America's rifle. One time he had spoken to an executive from Smith & Wesson, one of the big gun manufacturers, and he asked this executive from Smith & Wesson, you know, this was a few years back, what the market was for these guns. Who were they selling them to? Who did they hope to sell them to? And he used the term couch commandos. He said that's where the big market is. Now, couch commandos are young men who are not going to go near any battlefield, but who sit at home playing their video shooter games. Now, in these games, the rifle that's used predominantly is look, looks very much like an AR-15. And then at the same time, I think what you had was returning vets, people coming back, some of them regarded as heroes, you know, who'd been fighting the, the Taliban, you know, they were returning home to heroes' welcomes. And the NRA quite cleverly sort of hit upon the idea of basically turning them into celebrities. They would invite them to gala dinners and they would make the speeches. And these guys would then be invited to gun shows where people would line up to get their autographs. Matthew, why do people believe that AR-15 should be available to civilians? I mean, what's the point of it? I think that the feeling among many gun-loving Americans is that this is indeed, you know, an American rifle. The gun range and the target shooting is something that millions of people enjoy in America. And it's become a popular totem for gun rights advocates, all the more so for fundamentalists on this issue, such as the congresswoman uh, in Colorado who was recently elected narrowly, I have to say, but she was re-elected after making bizarre statements about the AR-15, including one in which she addressed a crowd in Colorado saying that, you know, it was a shame that Jesus Christ didn't have one because he might not have been crucified if if he'd owned a few AR-15s. On Twitter, a lot of the the little Twitter trolls, they like to say, oh, Jesus didn't need an AR-15. How, how many AR-15s do you think Jesus would have had? Well, he didn't have enough to keep his government from killing him. So... I mean, it's mind-boggling. One point to mention at this stage, perhaps, is that these weapons account for any, only a small amount of deaths. It's handguns that kill most Americans. And we're talking about 45,000 people a year at this point. Gun deaths are running at their highest level ever. It's the handguns that that are routinely used on a daily basis and kill most people. But the, the assault weapons have emerged as one of the characters in some of the most horrendous mass shootings in American history. And that seems to be a recent trend. The AR-15 has become the weapon of choice for mass killers. Coming up, we hear from a victim's family about what the AR-15 did to their son. But first... I'm Fiona Hamilton, the crime and security editor of The Times. I cover breaking stories from terrorist attacks to the world of organised crime. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk 
forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We've heard how the AR-15, designed for frontline warfare, became known as America's rifle and was marketed to ordinary American citizens. And, in the last decade, it became something else again. This morning, the Sandy Hook Elementary School was full of kids concerned about Christmas. And then, at 9.40 a.m., shots rang out. America is just now coming to grips with what unfolded here in the early morning hours here in Orlando, a massacre at a gay nightclub. By the time it was all over, at least 50 people dead, even more injured tonight. At least 58 people now dead, more than 500 people wounded in a horrific shooting on the Las Vegas Strip. It's the deadliest mass shooting in modern United States history. Scarcely a, a year goes by without some terrible tragedy like this occurring. The number of mass shootings in America has gone up considerably over the past few years. A mass shooting is defined by some in America as a, a shooting in which four people are killed, excluding the, the killer. And there are over three dozen this year alone. And so it goes on. One that a lot of us remember particularly because of the way in which some of the friends of the victims spoke out afterwards was Parkland, Florida in 2018. And Matthew, you went to meet the families of the victims. Can you tell us a bit about a particular couple you met, Tom and Gina Hoyer? Yes. Uh, among the victims was a, a young man called Luke Hoyer. I went to see his parents in their home in Parkland. So you traveled over here from... I came from London. <laughs> so y'all are going to love this. I'm obviously from the South, like South, South Carolina. Carolina. So when I lived in California, people thought I was from England. Really? <laughs> I'm like, wait a sec. My accent? And you think I'm British? How is that possible? <laughs> this is a part of Florida that's very affluent, I would say. You know, this is a gated community. Everyone has a swimming pool here. It's a very tranquil, peaceful place, apart from the old alligator lurking in the in the canals, you know, this is this is almost an idyllic setting, I would say. This family was hit by this awful tragedy. When asked, you know, how many children do you have? Gina Hoyer told me, she says, Yeah, the hardest question now is, 
How many kids do you have? Yeah. That's just a natural question for somebody. Mm. That's the first time I was asked. What do you say? You have three. I mm. still say I have three, and I say one's in heaven. Luke Hoyer uh, was a very popular kid. He played football and basketball, and uh, he he was a very charming young chap who was remembered for his smile. Funny, he always made me laugh. His um, PE teacher, she sent me pictures of a book that she had in the classroom after he died for the kids to write stuff. Mm -hmm. um, just about every one of them said, talked about his smile every day and how he made him laugh. In a way that was almost heartbreaking to hear them talking about about him, and so they were sitting in their living room talking about their son, with two very large dogs on the sofa with them, cuddling up to them. Gina said at one point, "The dogs go up to his bedroom quite a lot and lie on the bed because they they used to spend a lot of time with Luke." At which point, uh, Tom interjected yeah it was quite funny because he was always walking around the house snacking and the dogs followed him <laughs> around hoping to get some of it um so it was really quite quite sweet and very sad i think you know there are so many families like this who've been torn apart by these appalling mass shootings can you just remind us how old luke was yeah luke was 15 and he was shot dead along with 13 classmates and three teachers. The Hoyas were attending the trial of Nicholas Cruz, the killer, and uh, I went in with them on the day that the prosecutor was summing up. They were forced to listen again, yet again, to the awful details that have come out during the trial, which had been going on for several months. But there's something very unusual, which is that very often there isn't a trial, is there? That's right. In these cases, the killer is often killed by police. In some cases, the killer take their own lives. It's almost unheard of for someone involved in a shooting on this scale to be brought to justice. What the jury had to decide, unusually, was whether or not he should live or die, whether he should be sentenced to life in prison or lethal injection. Count one of the indictment, the murder in the first degree of Luke Hoyer, the court imposes a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Count two of the indictment, the murder in the first degree of Martin Duque and Quiano. In the end, he was sentenced to 34 consecutive life terms, which means he'll never get out of prison. During the course of the trial, did we get to understand what motivated him and also how he managed to get hold of the weapon that he used to kill Luke and those other people. Yeah, Nicholas Cruz, at the time this happened, was 19 years old and a former pupil of the school. 
he came from a very troubled background. His mother was a alcoholic, a drug addict, and he was basically farmed out to another family and adopted when he was very young. He was often in trouble with the school and with local authorities generally. He had a history of anger management issues. Yeah, this was a boy who went around with a swastika on his backpack. He was known as very strange. You know, his doodles were pictures of people shooting each other and things like that. And this was so noticeable to his classmates that there was something wrong with this kid. The teachers who dealt with him, I think, frankly, were afraid of him. And all of this came out in the trial and it, it led to the feeling that basically these families with pupils in the school had been very badly let down by, you know, the local administrative bodies. This just could have been prevented if people had paid enough attention. And um, the AR-15 that he used to carry out this massacre, he bought in a gun shop, in spite of the fact that he was known to the authorities as a troubled individual. But as Cruz had no criminal record and was over 18, he was able to buy the gun legally after passing an instant online FBI background check. In other words, if there had been any checks in place, it could be that the gun would never have been sold to him. Now, you talked about the families having to relive the details during the trial, which is almost unimaginable. And one of the things that they would have been told is about this weapon, how powerful it was, and what kind of damage it does. And we had a discussion about this when we were talking about how to make this podcast. And in the end, what we decided was, we've got to say the truth about what the impact of a gun like this is. There's no point in hiding it, even if it is really not nice. As I was talking to the Hoyers, Tom began to tell me about what they had heard in the course of the trial. And he said some of the details were unimaginably painful. For them, it was to do with the type of injuries that had been caused to these children. They had had no idea initially after it happened about some of these details. This is a gun that's so incredibly powerful. It fires bullets at a, at a very high velocity. They're small. They're designed to be carried by soldiers in battle. And so you need to be able to carry quite a few of them. And bullets you know, can weigh quite a bit when you have 100 or more. So when this bullet enters the body, it sometimes just disintegrates. And Tom said that this is something that, that, that had come out in the trial that he had heard for the first time. So, you know, some of the descriptions of, uh, you know, they talk about uh, snow, you know, bullets going so fast that when it hits the body, it just explodes into a thousand pieces. And it looks like on the, on the x-ray, just snow. The autopsy reports were hard and um, you know and just as an example one of the things that they told us and we believe for <laughs> the last four years was Luke was shot four times 
because he had four wounds. But it turns out he shot twice. But one of the bullets went in, out, and back in. And so the one bullet was three of the wounds. And it's a weapon designed to create the most damage, and it does. So it was really, it's really quite, quite disturbing. But what they had to sit through, I think, was very painful. Matthew, let's move on to the more general question and talk about the decades since Sandy Hook. Now, in the period since Sandy Hook took place, has the prevalence of the AR-15 in mass shootings, has that affected sales at all? Well, it's shocking to discover that sales generally have gone up after almost every mass shooting, along with the share prices of the companies who make AR-15s. And I think the logic behind this is that people are convinced every time something like this happens, it is such an appalling thing that dominates the news for for days on end, especially when it's a question of children being killed in their classrooms, and particularly at Sandy Hook, when these were, you know, the youngest is a five-year-old. So the logic is that the government obviously is going to do something about this. They're going to introduce gun controls. Therefore, now is the time to go out and buy more guns because we won't be able to further down the road because the government uh, will introduce gun controls. And this happened particularly under the presidency of Barack Obama. Gun sales went through the roof. The Americans were convinced that he was going to do something about it. And of course, he wasn't able to. He tried to reintroduce the ban on assault weapons and failed, even though he controlled Congress. The Democrats were were in power. They could not get this through again. And uh, it's testament to the power of the NRA, I think. The funding of the NRA is the lifeblood of many a political campaign in America, not just on the Republican side, I hasten to add. And so they have this incredible power and influence. So gun sales, yes, have have climbed and climbed. Now, funnily enough, when Trump came to power, there was a syndrome that the gun industry complained about as the Trump slump. Sales fell. People knew that the government under Trump was not about to take away their guns. Could we dig a bit more into the profits that are to be made from gun sales? Maybe look at a couple of specifics. Smith & Wesson posted sales last year of over a billion dollars, and Ruger had profits of over 200 million. These are record profits. In 2021, gun sales were about 20 million. Sales have never been higher than they are now. Then, in early 2022, a pioneering court case saw a group of families of the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre take the rifle manufacturer Remington, who made the AR-15 variant used in that shooting, for a slice of their profits. 
The Associated Press reporting that Remington will be paying $73 million to the victims' families. Well, now the outcome of this, the fact that this lawsuit really took a different approach by attacking the marketing strategy of Remington, opens the doors possibly for more uh, victims of gun violence to sue gun manufacturers. That didn't stop a mass shooting last May at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, which left 19 children and two teachers dead. One month later, President Biden achieved bipartisan support for the biggest gun control legislation in almost three decades. The more than $13 billion package enhances background checks for gun buyers under 21. It expands the category of domestic violence abusers banned from buying a gun. It gives incentives for states to pass red flag laws and gives funds for intervention, school security and mental health services. And last week, at a vigil marking the anniversary of Sandy Hook, Biden pledged to go even further. We've made some important progress, but still not enough. Still not enough. Even as our work continues to limit the number of bullets that can be in a cartridge, the type of weapons that can be purchased and sold, the attempt to ban assault weapons, a whole range of things that are just common sense. I think, frankly, nobody's really expecting progress on this. It's such a divisive issue. You know, when guns are proliferating at the rate they are, and with these militias prevalent now in many states in America, there are young men turn up in public on the streets with their AR-15s. It's it's hard to imagine how one could introduce legislation restricting their their use. And uh, I don't think that Americans are expecting Biden to uh, particularly now that he's lost control of the the House of Representatives uh, to the Republicans to be able to legislate on on guns at this point. Are there really Americans who feel safer because other Americans have AR-15s? Apparently so. I was reading the comments underneath the article I wrote in the Sunday Times magazine on this subject. And one of them was an essay by a man claiming that, you know, there was a long list of examples in which someone wielding an AR-15 had either defended their home by shooting a burglar or defended a family member by shooting an attacker. And it went on and on. He was arguing that the AR-15, therefore, will keep us safe. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's a, a lot of people believe that in America, that you need weapons to defend yourself. This is a proposition that is being tested to other people's destruction. The killings continue. Ten people were killed when a gunman opened fire. This was at a supermarket in a largely black neighborhood in Buffalo. Investigators say the suspect entered Club Q and opened fire with an AR-15 style rifle, killing five people and wounding at least a dozen others before being subdued by patrons. The shooting at the Robb Elementary School in the city of Uvalde is the deadliest shooting at a U.S. elementary school since 20 children and six adults were killed at Sandy Hook School in Connecticut a decade ago. 
And it's the same old question. When will it be sacrifice enough? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Foreign Features Editor at The Sunday Times, Matthew Campbell. You can find all of Matthew's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Sam Chantarasak and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes@thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.